Good evening. It's John Landis, your host for the Jam Session Radio Hour. Thanks for joining us once again. Tonight we have the second of two parts uh, of an interview that we did with jazz journalist Bill Milkowski. Um, you can learn more about him by going to his website, Bill Milkowski, M-I-L-K-O-W-S-K-I.com. Um, he's a venerable career. We'll talk more about that. But let's get to uh, part two of our interview with Bill Malkowski. I want to talk for just a second about the process of for you as a writer and a, a writer who covers music and then chooses to do certain books in your career. And, um, you know, clearly those have focused on the people, some of the people we've been talking about. But like maybe the Jocko book and the and the Mike uh, Brecker book, uh, put those in the context uh, for your life and how you decided, you know, why you decided to do those. And then also, was it a process by which you did lots lots of interviewing and research yourself, or did you know most of this already and you just wanted to tell the story? Um, so talk a bit about you as a writer and, and those, maybe using those as fulcrums. Okay, uh, definitely in the case of the Mike Brecker book, uh, Ode to a Tenor Titan, and the, the Jocko book, uh, The Extraordinary and Tragic Life of Jocko Pastorius, those both came from having personal relationships with those guys. I was very close friends with both of them. Uh, Jocko is somebody I had met when I was still living in Milwaukee and... Uh, had an encounter with him there uh, at a nightclub. The weather report came to town. This would have been 77. And uh, I knew being who he was that he would hang out at the local fusion hang in Milwaukee, which was a club called Georgie's. There was a band there that was the house band called Sweet Bottom. And they were playing, you know, all the... Brecker Brothers tunes, David Sanborn tunes, all the tunes of the day, they were covering that stuff. They were the band in town doing that music and doing it very well. Uh, the guitar player in that group, Daryl Sturmer, had left to join Jean-Luc Ponty's band. So he was that good that he got involved in a heavyweight fusion band. Uh, later, he ended up joining um, uh, Genesis and Phil Collins, and that's a whole other avenue. But so this was a local band, high quality, and I knew Jocko would be wanting to hang with those guys. It was a late night scene, sort of similar to 7th Avenue South. So I went to this club after the Weather Report gig, expecting to see Jocko there. Sure enough, I walk in the club, there's Jocko on stage playing Hang Up Your Hang Ups, the Herbie Hancock tune <laughs> with this band, right? And he's killing it. And I'm just, people are screaming and shit, it's amazing. And, uh, it's a fairly intimate nightclub, and there's Jocko like playing a Herbie tune with Sweet Bottom. How great is that? So uh, in between sets, I go into the bathroom, and there's Jocko in the bathroom. And what's funny is the local DJ, there was a late-night DJ who uh, started at midnight and went till 6 in the morning, and those were my hours in Milwaukee at the time. I was involved with the putting a newspaper together, the thing up until sunrise. And uh, we would listen to this guy. His name was Ron Kuzner. And uh, he was like, uh, he was for me, like the Wolfman Jack character in American Graffiti was for 
for uh, what's his name? Richard Dreyfus. Uh, River Dreyfus. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. So he was this cat, and he was playing the Jocko's first album, but he was pronouncing it as if he were French. Jaco, Jaco Pastorius. The DJ. So I look at the. I look at this out. Yeah, the DJ. He would announce the album. That was Jaco Pastorius. Yeah. He had this slow kind of late night voice, and I'd look at the album cover and I'm like, "Wow, he does look sort of continental French." <laughs> but I assumed he was a cat from France, not knowing. I didn't know if he spoke English, so here I am in the bathroom with this cat, and I'm like, "Oh." Jaco, yeah. How you doing, man? Jaco, right? And he's like, "Come on, tell Jaco, Jaco, <laughs> what the hell? I ain't no French cat. I'm a Florida beach bum, Jack. You know." And so he <laughs> laughed, and we had uh, a laugh. I ended up drinking a bottle of wine with him, talking shit, and went yeah. to that radio station that night with him. We dropped in at three in the morning, surprising this guy, Ron <laughs> Kuzner, and he ended up going on the air being interviewed so that was my first encounter with Chaco then after moving to New York I interviewed him for downbeat and he was like okay before you interview me you got to beat me in one-on-one in basketball like so we go to the court I had to play him in basketball and set up all these challenges for me so he's he kind of saw that I was sticking in there a lot of people he tested a lot of people like you know, he would uh, he would do he would he would do crazy shit. And, uh, Delmar Brown called it like the inner circle of people who could hang with Jocko were were defined as the Hang Dynasty. The like, Hang Dynasty. Are, are you in the Hang <laughs> Dynasty? Can you can you hang? And that often meant oh, that up for, great. staying up for two or three days without sleep. You know? Right. Your book is the definitive biography of, of Jocko. Yeah, yeah, but I've gone through several production companies that had stars attached, but it never came to fruition with funding. Uh, they bought the rights to my book. Uh, so somebody has the rights now? This is ironically, amazingly funny that you mentioned that because I'm in the process of re-signing, uh, not re-upping. I, I, a guy has had it for six years and he's finally exhausted all his possibilities. The COVID and the rights are coming back. And so there's a new guy that wants to do it and he's hooked up with some people. The previous guy had Jared Leto all hooked up to play Jocko, right? Too old. Another, another guy previously, this is now years, had uh, Benicio Del Toro committed to playing Jocko. This is not, this is like maybe 15 years it's gotta ago. Got to be a young man. I agree. But Benicio was a Jocko fan. Originally, the cat was Johnny Depp, and this is going back 20 years now. Wow. Johnny Depp is from Fort Lauderdale. Oh, my gosh. He, his mother used to see Jocko play. He plays bass himself and loved Jocko's music, but now we're talking 20 years ago, he was going to do this movie, but the funding never came, and it was yeah. like attach, attaching a star getting a script, all that stuff. I've yeah. gone through all of this. It's, it's still being played out. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. That's but really uh, – I went through a, a lot of fun, fun that. I think, stuff. I think it could be – you don't necessarily have to have a name because the person – in fact, it's almost like, you know, having Tom Hanks play some of these roles. Obviously, Tom's an older guy, but sometimes you have to have somebody who's unknown 
who then, you know, like totally wraps himself in the role and that makes that person, you know, a step towards a star. But you know what I'm saying? It's like Jocko's personality was so amazing. Why, why take another personality and try to force it into that mold? I agree. In fact, the first screenplay that I read uh, that a production company generated had all this symbolic stuff about the, you know, sort of copying uh, all that jazz where they embodied death as no. a spirit hovering over him. And no. I'm like, why would you want to do that? So unnecessary. That straight story yeah. is better than any opera you've ever cool. heard about, cool. you know? Yeah, in fact, the first time I interviewed him at the 55 bar in Soho, which was the place that he and Mike Stern and Laney Stern lived above this place and inevitably jammed there just about every night with different configurations of musicians that were That was 55 Grand? Is that what it was called? 55 Grand, yeah, 55 Grand uh, in Soho. Uh, you know, I was scheduled to interview Jocko there like in the afternoon. I show up at the place and he's like, okay, first we got to play basketball. Right. And we do that. And then he's like, okay, now it's too late. We can't do the interview. I got to play. So after the gig, we'll do the interview. Right. So I sit through like three sets of music and then he's like, well, now it's two in the morning. He's like, well, now we got to go to Chinatown. We got to get something to eat. I can't do an interview <laughs> on an empty stomach. So now we go to Chinatown and he's got like three or four hangers on and it's a big wild scene. And he's like, okay, now we got to go to Jerry Jamat's house. You know, his hero, bass hero, who played on all the Motown shit and with right. Aretha. So now we're on the subway going up to Harlem to see Jerry Jamat. You know, now it's sunrise. And so finally, after I'm jumping through all those hoops, he's like, okay, let's do that interview. <laughs> so that was a regular night with Chaco, you know. Thank you. 
Listen to 88.3 FM in Southampton, New York. That's WLIW FM in Southampton. Also heard at WLIW.org slash radio and 96.9 FM as you go west into western Suffolk. Uh, this is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and we're listening to an interview of Bill Milkowski. Oh, it's heavier than just writing a book. I'm involved in a way right? Uh, that... Uh, you know, when I, when I think of this stuff, it's sort of, you know, for me, having had cancer was ancient history. And when I start thinking about it, I'm like, Oh, that happened to me. I forgot almost. Uh, You get past this stuff. It becomes ancient history. And it's hard to remember that Jocko passed away that long ago. When did you Uh, write the Jocko book? uh, He passed in 87. I didn't write it till 90. It came out in 95. So I didn't think about writing it till like six years after he passed. Yeah. And then I began uh, collating all my information and making key phone calls to people like his brothers and his ex-wives and people who knew him. His very pivotal figure, Bob Bobbing, who was his best pal down in Florida. And each person I called put me in touch with someone else. Well, you got to call this guy. And this guy was Jocko's friend in high school. And this guy, and you know, so over time, I got testimonies from so many people. Uh, that book came out in uh, 1995. And then 10 years later, my publisher allowed me to do a 10th anniversary edition where I went and rewrote the thing it was twice as long essentially the new edition involved me going down to florida and interviewing a lot of people who i didn't know who i hadn't met some people who couldn't talk to me at the time because they were too freaked out it was too close to his death like his girlfriend at the time he died and stuff she she couldn't talk to me then for the second book she told me everything people came out of the woodwork the cop the cop who had arrested him, you know, and Adam, uh, he was let out of uh, jail the night that he met his fate and was murdered. The cop who had him in jail and was presiding over his being in the drunk tank, so to speak, you know, unveiled all this information for the second edition. So it was not only corrected and updated, but it was profoundly a new edition uh, of the book that allowed me to go way deeper with it. And um, did you badly at that point, did you badly want to do that? um, that, that They asked me, they said, you want to do anything to commemorate the 10th anniversary? And I said, Oh, well, let me do some more writing. I'd love to investigate the early years and, you know, really puff that up the pre New York years I think because of my own personal bias of having met Jocko and hanging with him in New York, perhaps the first edition was weighted in favor of the New York years. Although I did go back and get testimony from 
the people that knew him from high school. But for the second edition, I did a very thorough research of people that I hadn't connected with the first time. And it made the portrait just much fuller, 3D portrait, beautiful testimony from his uh, girlfriend and more stuff coming out. Uh, and it, it was great. So that was a case of a guy I knew who was a pal, you know, who's yeah. crashed on my couch many times and who I helped out many times when he was in trouble, sort of. Uh, it was a dark period, the bipolar thing. Nobody knew what that was. Nobody, this was before Jocko got diagnosed in Bellevue. I was visiting him in Bellevue every day because I lived about four blocks away. You know, he was saying, uh, bring over a row of quarters every time I came because there was a payphone at the end of the hall in his ward and he would call people trying to get a record deal hooked up with uh, this demo tape that he had under his arm. He's, he's calling Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who had started a label called Cranberry Records in L.A., Kareem, you know, he's trying to hook up a deal. He's calling Lundball. He's calling all these people. Every time I'd visit him, he'd say, bring me a roll of quarters. You know, he'd dominate the payphone at the end of the uh, alley, uh, end of the hall. And um, man, so, I mean, I was pals with him, but also helping him. And so, you know, came to realize, uh, combine my friendship with him and my journalistic side into doing this book and then doing it much better the second time around for the yeah. 10th anniversary edition. Story, similarly with the Michael Brecker book. On that. Yeah. Thank you. With the Michael Brecker book. Similarly, he got to be a pal of mine. You know, like I say, he played it in my that, that uh, charity gig that they did for me when I had cancer and they raised money for me. And uh, we got to be friends and phone friends. And I was at various sessions where I would see him recording stuff and he'd, call me up and one time he had a tour coming up in Europe and he was he was like oh Tane can't make this tour Jeff Tane was who do you recommend who would you think I could get that would be like Tane and I said there's only one guy Ralph Peterson so he ended up getting Ralph Peterson and they did a tour together they didn't record but there are YouTube clips of them and it was great it was a beautiful connection so he not that he relied on me but he appreciated my feedback and we had friendly chats that way just like I did with Jocko and you know so it was a friendship and then that got turned using my expertise as a journalist and a writer I was able to use some of my personal connections to Mike to also to Randy to to get the full story and so I, when I got a green light from a publisher, which uh, is the same publisher who did the Jocko book, Backbeat Books, when they gave me the go-ahead, it was in uh, May of 2019 that they gave me the green light. Uh, I began in earnest gathering stories, collecting uh, testimonies from people, um, you know, went to Pennsylvania to interview David Liebman, he's since moved back to Manhattan. I went to uh, Hastings on Hudson to interview Susan Brecker, Mike's widow. I went out to East Hampton to interview Randy Brecker and Gil Goldstein. And uh, man, I just, I spent the entire year 
going around interviewing people, mostly in person. And I got a hundred interviews. I, wow. I did that whole year of interviewing and then spent all of 2020 transcribing the interviews and shaping it into a book. And queen, conveniently, it was lockdown anyway. Yeah, you yeah. know, I would have been, if there was no pandemic, I would have still been in lockdown doing that 12 hours a day, right. transcribing a hundred interviews and then fashioning it into a book. Yeah. I delivered my manuscript in late December of 2020 and uh, through the next five or six months, it was a whole series of proofing, editing, gathering photos, getting uh, permissions, getting copyrights, you know, uh, paying photographers with a measly budget they gave me and putting this book together, which finally came out in October of 2021. And it's gotten a lot of great press and great feedback. And, uh, you know, so that like the Jocko book sort of interwoven my own personal experience, which allowed me to be more than a journalist on these projects. It allowed me to feel it on a deeper level and pursue it in a different way than a journalist would yeah. because I had a personal investment in there and there was an emotional connection to these guys. Pilgrimage's last album, it came out posthumously winning two posthumous Grammys, which his wife, Susan, and his kids, Sam and Jessica, accepted the posthumous Grammy Awards for this album. Uh, this album interestingly, is the only record that he made that had all his own compositions. Yeah. Many of his past records had other uh, friends and fellow composers. This was all Mike's, and it was challenging music. As, as Herbie said, you know, uh, it's like, man, are you sure you're sick, Mike? <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. like difficult stuff, and you're killing it. Uh, they sort of half-joked during the sessions about Going out on tour, uh, Matheny was like, man, let's, let's do a tour, maybe just the East Coast. And this is uh, unbelievable. Uh, but Mike was very sick. I mean, he was sort of in and out and was able to rise to the occasion to complete this record. And uh, shortly after, succumbed. He, he willed himself to do the record and then willed himself to stay alive long enough to attend his son's bar mitzvah, which was important to him. Wow. He, he, against all odds, did both of those things and then passed. And the record came out posthumously and won two Grammys.
The Jam Session Radio Hour is supported by Bayard Fenwick as a sponsor and underwriter. As part of the Terry Cohen team, located at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate, Bayard is well-versed in the residential real estate market from Bridgehampton to East Hampton to Amagansett to Montauk. Bayard believes there are three parts to the value of a property, land value, improvements made to the property, and an emotional component. You can reach Bayard Fenwick at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate at 631-324-7575. That's 631-324-7575. The Jam Session Radio Hour is also supported by Oza Sabbath Architects of Bridgehampton, New York. Oza Sabbath Architects both designs and builds homes, believing that a well-designed home suffuses our lives with the essential elements of balancing and recharging. Oza Sabbath Architects can be reached at ozasabbath.com. That's O-Z-A-S-A-B-B-E-T-H.com and at 631-808-3036. That's 631-808-3036. Thanks for staying with us uh, on our interview, on part two of our interview with Bill Milkowski, jazz journalist. Uh, again, 88.3 FM, Southampton, New York, 96.9 as you go west into western Suffolk. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. And thanks again for joining us. So just a heroic figure for any number of reasons. So many triumphs throughout his life. Beating the heroin addiction is just the beginning of it. You know, making two incredible kids is another triumph, you know, having this incredible life full of music, helping others. And yet this guy gets cut down at the peak of his contentment and the height of his art. It's just such a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. You know, existentially you say, why Michael, why not Trump? Right. I mean, (laughs) here's a guy that's been doing good all his life and he's cut down. He's cut down. So, uh, it's it's a rich rich legacy about helping people and bringing really bringing healing music to others. Yeah. And uh, this music is still here when we listen to it now. It's as fresh and vibrant uh, today as it was when he recorded. And there are legions of players that are still dissecting his music and adoring him as a player. Um, and carrying on in his spirit. Uh, There's a group from the Bay Area called Charged Particles. Um, And there's a tenor player in that group named Todd Dicko. Uh, um, You should check out this album. They just put out an album. It came out um, in conjunction with my book, in a sense. It came out around the same time. It's a tribute to Michael Brecker. And they're tackling all this very incredible, incredibly difficult Michael Brecker music. Uh, and it's live at the Big Potato, which is a famous club in LA. And they're just, uh, John Krosnick is the uh, drummer and uh, leader of the band. Um, they, he organized, he's organizing tours now. I'm actually going on tour with them, doing some lectures that precede their concerts. But this guy, Todd, captures Michael's spirit in such a deep way. It's not a transcription thing. It's not an intellectual thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a heart thing. And he really captures it and he's bringing it. 
in a deep way that's very moving. And uh, so you might want to check that out because it's, you know, we say Mike's spirit is alive in the music. And this is one of the reasons this guy's really bringing it to the bandstand, bringing Mike's spirit alive every time he plays. That's fantastic. Uh, give us a vignette of what you're, what you're going to be doing now and what you're, what you're, what you're going to be up to in the next few years in your career. Um, before I do that, can I interject the Pat Martino book? Please. Only because we just lost him. The great Pat Martino recently passed. And, uh, that's a book, to, that's to, a book that's to, out, Bill? No, that came out in 2015. Oh, that book is out. Okay. Yeah, that's out. It's, uh, his, what it is is his autobiography. It's called Here and Now, the Autobiography of Pat Martino. And I'm, it's like with Bill Malkowski. And what that okay. is is, I, again, I was friends with Pat. I knew him. I met him in the 70s. I got to know him over time. I was good friends with him and interviewed him many times before his aneurysm and after. I mean, he had an aneurysm that required emergency life-saving surgery that saved his life, but erased his memory. And so he had, he woke up from surgery, not recognizing his parents or certainly the guitar. He's like, I have no relationship with this instrument. Uh. He had to relearn the guitar, relearn to play the guitar and to express himself through it. It was an incredible battle, long, rough road back. And uh, I was, privy to a, his whole trip back and was close friends with him during that time through interviews and phone calls and hangs and stuff. And uh, I ended up doing a recording with him, producing a record for Blue Note called All Sides Now, which was a sort of an all-star thing that uh, featured Pat as the focal point. It was sort of a, a lot of people paying homage to him other guitar players on every track. There's a different player, Kevin Eubanks, Mike Stern, uh, Michael Hedges, um, uh, Tuck Andrus, uh, uh, Les Paul, Pat's oh my mentor and hero. They do a beautiful version of, uh, well, what's funny about that is I had set up to do this uh, recording with Les, who was playing every Monday night at the Iridium with his trio. And Pat, I went to scout out Les and noticed that he ended every set with Caravan. So I thought, oh, they got that one down. We, we should do Caravan. I made the music and Zirak, you know, what do you call uh doesn't even, no one does it, faxed it. I yeah. faxed the music to Pat, the sheet music of Caravan. They learned us, we're going to do this. They booked the time for the studio. We get to the studio, everything's set up. They're plugged in ready to go on caravan. Les looks at Pat and goes, hey, you know this one? And he starts playing, I'm confessing that I love you, uh -huh. right? And we're rolling and Pat like jumps in on it and they do a take and Pat like just from knowing the music, he didn't study it, he didn't have a sheet music. He just starts playing the melody on it. Les was comping behind him. He's like, hey, you know this one? I'm confessing that I love you. Pat goes right into it. We get a take and we like, let's do another one. Second take is good. We ended up using the first take. It was like magic, you know? Mm -hmm. 
thanks for staying with us uh, on our interview, on part two of our interview with Bill Milkowski, jazz journalist. Uh, again, 88.3 FM, Southampton, New York, 96.9 as you go west into western Suffolk. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. And thanks again for joining us. So then when it came time for Pat to do this autobiography, he called me to do it with him. And so what that meant was me jumping on a bus, going to South Philly, hanging out in his living room, sitting on his couch, talking for four hours, breaking for dinner, coming back, talking another four hours. Recording it all? Yeah, all this, you know, and then I did that maybe five different occasions. Got all these hours of reminiscing, you know, with Pat and sort of carved that into shape of a book. He'd go off on a riff about, you know, sacred geometry and Zen Buddhist philosophy. And I'd say, I'd interject like, Pat, what kind of shoes did Jack McDuff have? You know, <laughs> and that would, that would pull him back into the gigs at Small Par- Small's Paradise uh-huh. back in the 60s when he was playing in McDuff's band. And then, you know, the images would come and he'd start reminiscing and I'd get good stories. When? When, when did you do the autobiography? You said 2000? That came out in 2015. So, Okay. So that was so he had the aneurysm in 1980, right? And then my record with him on Blue Note came out in 1997. 97, okay. So many years later, 2015, the book came out. Well, um, I'm I'm uh, kind of overwhelmed just talking to you, and as I'm sure our listeners are, these stories have been tremendous, and they there's so much life in them and so much jazz in them and you're 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 great bill you're you're just awesome so i and, should a- answer your question now about what am i yeah, working yeah with? what's going on and then well you know i continue to write for downbeat and jazzes and audio uh audiophile magazines like uh, yeah. absolute sound so i mean i'm doing those stories i just did a retrospective piece on the great guitarist larry carlton who is announced very like very much like elton john his farewell tour. Wow. He, and so he's yeah. in the midst of that farewell tour now. In fact, he's playing at Iridium in, uh, I think it's March 10th and 11th. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's sort of going to hang it up in a way. Uh, so I did a piece on him and uh, Tierney Sutton, the singer. Uh, I just did a beautiful interview with her. Uh, I'm interviewing people all the time. I got an interview with Ron Carter coming up in in recognition of his they're doing a big gala for him at Carnegie Hall, his 85th uh, birthday concert with uh, so many people paying tribute to him. Um, that's going to be beautiful. And man, it's like from week to week, it's, it's something else. But in terms of books, I'm knee deep already on another book that is amazingly fascinating to me. And it's just about, you know, great stories. It's what I got from all the people who paid testimony in the Mike book or the Jocko book, they were telling me great stories. Uh, this guy is still around, and he's like one of the funniest and greatest storytellers ever who lived an incredibly rich life that a lot of people don't know about, the drummer Mike Clark. They probably know him from Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. Uh-huh. Uh, but this is a cat that's been playing professionally since he was seven. He played with Gatemouth Brown and uh, Albert King and 
Clarence Frogman Henry and uh, all kinds of stuff through his life and his story and the telling of these tales and this life that he led is just unbelievably, that's a movie to me. As soon as I get it together, we've done about 20 hours of interviews in a similar fashion as I did the Pat Martino book. Uh, I, I don't imagine it'll be out till next year, but it'll be probably in his voice because he's so colorful. He's like this cat that's sort of a streetwise cat, but also a Buddhist. So he's like, yeah. it's similar to Pat Martino, a Zen yeah. master and a streetwise cat from South Philly. Yeah. This guy is a Bay Area cat from the hood who's also chanting Nambi Orangekio every night, you know? <laughs> so he's a, and he's funny, uh, hilarious, so many stories. I'm, I'm up to my neck with this right now. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm entertained every time we do a phone chat, which goes for two hours or more. Uh, uh, ironically, he lives right around the corner from where I used to live in Washington Heights, but I moved to West Hartford. I mean, yeah. We couldn't be, doing it in person, but I'm doing a lot of phone interviews with him. So that's going to be some book somewhere. I, I don't know what publisher, but uh, this cat, man, he's got a million and one stories uh, that long before he got into the Headhunters and did uh, Thrust and all those great records. Uh, he, he was uh, a working musician in living in Texas and New Orleans and the Bay Area and Sacramento and he was on the Chitlin circuit. I mean, come on. He played, he went out on tour with uh, Lawanda, the mother who, the, the woman who played uh, Aunt Esther on, uh, on Sanford and Son, right? <laughs> he backed her on a tour. He played with everybody. He's got a million and one stories of playing with these cats. He's got Albert King stories and Gatemouth Brown stories and uh, just on and on and on. Long before he met up with Herbie Hancock. That's his sort of claim to fame that people know him for but uh you have a title for the book crazy as a motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know i don't know uh but he's he's crazy and hilarious and just one of these cats with total recall who can tell a story with such rich detail yeah that you feel like you're there yeah and it's it's just uh i'm inspired to hear great storytelling wherever it comes from. Well, that's going to be, uh, is that also going to be kind of an autobiography style? Is that, or in I think so. Cause I, I'm going to try to preserve his style <laughs> of speech, you know, and the Pat Martina book was in the first person. It, it, it was. And I interspersed it with uh, third person interviews. Like Pat would tell a story. Uh, and then if it involved somebody, I would then talk to that person to get their side of the story and we would set off their little testimony in italics within right. the body of the text of Pat's flowing narrative. So it was interspersed with these asides by other people giving their pointer, adding, augmenting uh, about something. Uh, uh, like, for instance, uh, when Pat was a kid, he played in a group with Bobby Rydell, who was in his neighborhood, South Philly Italian neighborhood, Bobby Ritarelli. He was the drummer in Pat's kid band that went on the Ted Mack Amateur Hour, right? So Pat told stories about that, but then I talked to Bobby Rydell about his stories about nice. that, you know, and got yeah. his his very vivid. And of course, 
part of the reason for this was because Pat's memory was spotty on certain things. Right. On certain details that I'd have to fill in, fill in the blanks. Yeah. And I said, oh, man, I'm talking to Bobby Rydell about the band they had when they were 15, you know, <laughs> and getting uh, details about Pat's father and the, yeah. the Italian section of South Philly and living there and Pat's father taking him to the barber shop to play for everybody when he's 12. My kid can play. Listen to him, you know, and having to play uh, standards to all the guys at the South Philly barbershop. <laughs> a million one stories. I love them all. Mike Clark is feeding me with a new batch of stories. And so it goes. That's awesome. You know, uh, we, we can talk about this after we're off, and I'll, I'll shut off the record in a second. But thank you so much, Bill Mulkowski. Great. Everybody, you know, read these books, read his articles. You don't have a podcast, right? You don't, you don't, I know you've got, I, don't, some, but I do have that website and I'm going to start putting up uh, more audio files. Yeah. Put up your audio files on the website because that'll be like your podcast and it's billmikowski.com. Um, yeah. The blog yeah. site is actually called the milkman's musings. Milkman's. If people anyway. listen to this show before, they got to listen to it now because this was, this was a fabulous interview. Thank you so much, Bill McCowski. Cool. Very stick good. Around. Stick around. Don't go away. Okay. Um, want to mention again the Hamptons uh, Jazz Fest, which continues its winter series on May 20th with John Arabigan at the Southampton Arts Center. Doors open at 6. Uh, also stay tuned later on in the season as the season unfolds for the second year of the Hamptons Jazz Fest in July, August, and September. We'll tell you more about that as time unfolds. Um, also wanted to remind you about the Jam Session, which is taking place at uh, the Masonic Temple above the Sag Harbor Whaling Museum in, uh, on Main Street in Sag Harbor. And that occurs on Tuesday nights from 7 to 9. It's a, a great gathering of jazz fans hearing some really interesting jazz and uh, jam sessions that uh, are led by our drummer and music director, Clayus Brondahl. Thanks so much to Rafael Alvarez for, uh, for putting this show together, for all the wonderful recording work that he does, sound work that he does. And thanks to our underwriters, Oza Sabbath Architects and uh, Bayard uh, Fenwick III of Saunders Real Estate. Thank you to WLIW. Thanks to all of you for staying tuned with us. Um, stay well, take care of each other, and good night for the Jam Session Radio Hour.